You guys tired of me yet? <laughs> Feel like I've been up here a lot lately, so didn't even know how to dress today. I'm trying to remember. Is this what I wore last time? It's kind of hard to be all GQ when you don't even know what GQ stands for. At least I have Sherry at home where if I overdo something, she'll give me one of these. Um, so I got that going for me. I didn't get that, so here we go. We're wrapping up a great series today. We're wrapping up a series in the book of Romans where we're studying the will of God. And this reminds me of back uh, before I became a Christian, I became a cynic. And I used to watch TV evangelists for purely the entertainment value back in the 1980s and You'd hear these guys, you know, ask questions like, are you in the will of God? And I'd think, and it'd be cool if I was. <laughs> like to inherit some money. <laughs> yeah, except God is never going to die, so how am I supposed to collect it? <laughs> and then I finally realized that wasn't what they meant by God's will, so... But it is a great opportunity we have here to study a little bit about what God's will is, and this is a question that really, you know, grabbed my attention early on because, you know, if there, once you decide or come to believe that there is a God, the next logical question is, is he friendly and what does he want? It's no different than if a spaceship lands in Washington, D.C. and a bunch of little gray men get off. The first thing you'd want to know is, number one, are they friendly, <laughs> and why are they here? What do they want with us? And it's no different when we come to believe in God. It's only logical for us to ask ourselves, you know, what does God expect of me? What does he want from me? Uh, what is the nature of relationship that I need to have with him? And this is where... Uh, you know, again, I used to watch these TV evangelists, and I'd hear them all say things like, God has a plan for your life. And in my head, I would always add a last little part. I just heard it every time they said that. It was, God has a plan for your life. And my head would go, yeah, and it's going to suck. That's <laughs> just honest. That's what I thought. I thought, yeah, it's going to be miserable. And but later on, I ran into a gentleman that added a different spin on that. He pulled me aside one day and he says, you know, God has a plan for your life, and so does that other guy. And he helped me to understand that there's actually two separate wills for my life. And if I don't choose to do one, the other one will happen by default. Because we live in a world where there's kingdoms in conflict. There is a battle going on not only in this world, but in me, for a battle for control. And I'm constantly getting pulled in two opposite directions. And that really helped to clarify things when I started to understand what goes on in me and why I do the things I do. It's because there are influences, both on me and in me, pulling me in opposite directions. And that really helped to clarify things a little bit. And what helped to clarify it even more is when it was explained to me 
the motivation that these two forces have. I've finally come to understand that God has one motive and one motive only. Everything that God does and everything God refuses to do is always motivated by the same singular thing, love. And this will make a lot of sense, I think, to parents. You know, if you're a loving parent, and I pray that you are, then you know that your concern is for the benefit of your children. And it's not so much about what you decide to do or not do in any particular circumstance. Your ultimate goal is for the long-term development of your children. So you might choose to give them a cookie because you want them to be happy. You might choose to not give them a cookie because you want them to be hungry when you serve dinner. You might choose to give them some money because they're a little short that month, or you might choose to not give them money because they need to learn to be more responsible with what they have, or they might need to find more motivation to get a job. So, again, if we're parents, we start to get a little insight into the mind of God on what motive motivates God. The Bible also tells us in John 10.10 that we have an adversary in this world. And in that part, the Bible likens the devil to a thief. And it clearly states three separate wills for the devil. It says that he came to kill, steal, and destroy. So that's his motivation. And I love how they explain those three terms to me. The word kill basically means to deprive a living thing of life. And that means that we have... There are forces in this world that don't just want to kill me physically. There's forces that want to kill me mentally and emotionally. But there's especially, I believe the devil's will is to kill us spiritually, to deprive us of spiritual life. So all we're doing is existing in this world, but we're not experiencing the depth of life that God has in store for us. That's where in the Garden of Eden, when God said, if you do this thing, you will die, I think they died immediately a spiritual death. The spirit that God breathed into them left their body, and they became, they were still alive for many years physically, but they, God was still with them, but he wasn't in them to the degree that he used to be. So they died an instant spiritual death. So the second will of the devil is, to steal. And the definition of steal is to convert to one's own use. So you could steal this building. You don't have to pick it up and run off with it. All you have to do is concoct a way to use it for your own purposes while depriving the rightful owners of it. And that leads a question, what would the devil want to steal? No good thief steal, breaks into your house and steals the plastic knives and forks, they're going to go for the valuables. And what has value to the devil? I think primarily it's those spiritual gifts that we talked about a couple of weeks ago to convert them to his own use. It's interesting to me, like if you study Anton LaVey and the Satanic Bible, it, it is not the mirror opposite of the Holy Bible. It doesn't say the devil's God. 
It doesn't say you have to sacrifice things to the devil or give things to him. It says exactly the opposite. What the Satanic Bible teaches us is you don't have to give up nothing because you are God. And that book exists to facilitate you getting everything you deserve because you are God. And therefore, it's all about saving yourself, serving yourself, loving yourself, and forgiving yourself. And you can do those things because you are God. So in that respect, in order to serve the other side, you don't have to swing so far as to strap on goat leggings and prance around the campfire. (laughs) All you have to do is use your gifts, talents, and abilities to build your own kingdom. And in that regard, you're not building God's. Because I don't believe God is in the business of taking things back. I don't think he repossesses anything. If you don't use the gifts he gave you properly, he's not going to come back, well, you screwed that up. I'm going to deprive you of those things. I think we have a right to be wrong. And I, I've seen a lot of people that had gifts, talents, and abilities that used them in very wrong ways. If you have a scientific mind, you could use that to find a cure for cancer or build a meth lab. If you have a strong body, you could use that to help people move furniture or to collect money for the mob. If you have a great powers of persuasion, you can use that to talk people into believing in God or talk them out of believing in God. But you see, I think that's how a lot of times our gifts get stolen from us and converted to a different use. And the third will of the devil, it says, is to destroy. And the definition of that is to render useless. I could destroy your car out in the parking lot by driving it into a bridge above it. Or I could destroy it by getting under your dashboard and clipping one wire. And in that respect, you couldn't drive it. It would be rendered useless because it won't start. And I've seen a lot of people through the years, like those TV evangelists out of the 80s. They were tremendously gifted. I think a lot of what they had was real. But because of certain things that they fell victim to, they were destroyed, rendered useless in the respect that they, in that case they kept their gifts. They just couldn't use them. And I've seen a lot of people through the years that should be able to do great things, but they were just parked on a sidetrack rendered useless for one reason or another. And once we understand that, we have God's will on the one side, we have the devil's on the other, and then that, of course, leaves that third party to the mix, which is us. Where do we fit in that? Where's our will in all of this? And this is where, you know, at first, that really starts to seem complicated, doesn't it? If you ask people, what do you want? Oh boy, better pack a lunch. <laughs> what do I, you know, what do I want? You know, it's like a guy wrote a book one time on what do women want. You know, it sold a lot of copies. You open up one word, everything. One <laughs> <laughs> <Want> at <it> all. <laughs> but <laughs> why do I say? <laughs> but that's true of all of us, isn't it? What do I want? I want everything. I want it all. But. You know, I want to finish this education. I want that job, that title, that career. I want a million dollars in the bank. I want that house, that car, that 
girl, you know, or guy, you know. Six months later, I just want to get rid of that girl or that guy, whatever you want. But you see, when you really get down to it, though, our wants and needs are a lot simpler than that. God wired us all together, and not just humans, all the animals in the in his kingdom. He wired them all with three basic instincts. An instinct for society, security, and sexuality. That's the way I remember it, social security sex. (laughs) (laughs) But those are our three God-given instincts. The first one is an instinct for society, social instinct. What does that mean? It simply means that I desire the approval of my peers. I want to be popular. I want to be cool, hip, slick, and cool. I want to be accepted. I want to be an innie and not an outie. I want to be a part of and not a part from. And the way that God wired us together is we none of us has a gauge on our own dashboard we can look at to tell if we're okay or not. We have to look to our peers for their feedback to tell us if we're okay or not. Am I dressed right? Am I dressed funny? Is my hair okay, or is it too long or too short? Is my lawn okay, or is it, you know, did I hang enough Christmas lights this year or not? We ha- In our neighborhoods, we have to look to our neighbors to kind of set the, the, the standard for that, don't we? Or we have to look to our friends to tell us if we're dressed right. or And it all depends on the types of peers we select. You know, I grew up with some peers where, you know, long hair was cool. You know, it was kind of hippies. <laughs> you know, bikers and hippies. But there's other societies where long hair would be very uncool. Be cool to shave your head. But it all depends on the feedback you get and who your peers are. We all have that God-given instinct for society. The second thing we all want is we want security. I don't want you messing with my stuff out here. I don't want you messing with my stuff in here. So I build walls around my stuff and lock it up out here. I build walls around my stuff in here and I lock it up because I just want to have security. In this world, money has a lot to do with security. A lot of times the more money you have that you think, the more secure you'll be. The irony is sometimes the more money you get, the more insecure you find yourself because now everybody wants a piece of you. <laughs> they want to sue you and tax you to death and, you know, rob you. And, you know, so it's money isn't the answer, but sometimes we perceive that to be security. The third thing we all want as human beings is we want sexuality. And that doesn't just mean sex. It means we perhaps we want a partner, we want companionship, we want to be married, we want to be loved, we want children, we want a family, we want a house in the suburbs, a white picket fence, 2.3 kids, 3.2 dogs and cats, whatever it is. But that all fits into an instinct for sexuality. And that's what motivates us to do things or not do them. But even behind that, All of those things that we want are a means to another end. Ultimately, if you ask people, what do you really want? You'll always get the same one answer. What do you really want? Peace. I can't have peace if I don't have security. 
I can't have peace if I don't have the approval of my peers. I can't have peace if I'm lonely or alone or my sexuality isn't fulfilled. And you see, once we understand that, it's not so much a question of what do we want, is it? What's our will? But it's really a question of how are we going to get it? How am I going to get security? How am I going to get approval? How am I going to fulfill my sexuality? And that's where the the real debate is, isn't it? Not what we want. How are we going to get it? What do we perceive as the best pathway to peace? And that's where the real spiritual warfare in this world is a battle for the mind. It's a battle of beliefs. It's a battle of differing philosophies on what is really going to satisfy us. And once we understand that, we can get into this uh, thing with God's will, and hopefully it's going to start making a little more sense. You know, it's been said that when I was born, I think Mom must have delivered me in a C-section because, you know, every time I leave the room, I crawl out through a window. That's... <laughs> Actually, what I mean to say is I think I was born backwards <laughs> because people tell me, you know, you always approach things in a weird way, you know, backwards or you look at things from different angles. And uh, But that's just kind of how my brain works. And that's why one of the things that I really am anxious to get into here in this topic is to really not to so much look at God's will in a certain area as to look at why. See, I'm the guy that you have to tell me why. If you give me a job and train me to do something, say, oh, and whatever you do, don't turn this knob, why? <laughs> I need you to explain it to me. You know what? And I'll, if you don't, I'll probably, you know, i got to know what this does. <laughs> that's just how I am. And that's where, from the time I was a little kid, they sent me to Sunday school, and I got bombarded with knowledge of God's will. Do the do's and don't do the don'ts. But nobody ever told me why. Where did God come up with these lists of things to do and things not to do? It didn't make sense to me. Nobody ever told me why. And hopefully we can get into that a little bit today, and maybe some of this will make a little more sense. The particular passage we're looking at today comes out of Romans 12, 17 through 21, where it says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with the good. Well, if you think like me, that's just crazy talk. <laughs> You've often heard me say that if I was not a Christian today, I would be a vigilante. I think the first words out of my mouth as a kid was, it's not fair. And when I was growing up, the rule of the house was even Stephen. Everything had to be fair. And 
It wasn't good enough that my mom gave my brother and I M&Ms. Now we have to count <laughs> to see who got more. And I had peace of mind as long as everything was fair. Unfortunately, I didn't get that foundational belief that we have out here at Hope Church. I didn't understand that we live in a fallen world. I didn't understand that there's a lost world around us. So I grew up with this belief that somehow everything should be fair. And if you're like me, I didn't see a lot of justice in this world. I was focused on a lot of injustice. Every day I saw good guys lose and bad guys win, and that didn't make any sense to me. And finally, when I became a teenager, it was back in the 1970s at the height of revenge movies at the drive-in. And I grew up feeding my head on movies like, uh, I know I've said this before, but movies like uh, Charles Bronson and Death Wish and uh, Billy Jack, uh, uh, movies like, you know, Dirty Harry Callahan, uh, Peter Fonda had a great one, Fighting Mad, pretty obscure, uh, TV shows like Kung Fu. I love those things. I, I mean, to me, those were instructional videos. <laughs> I'm the guy in the front row taking notes, you know, because these guys didn't have to take that. And they weren't sitting around waiting for the legal system to catch up and prosecute these bad guys, you know. These guys weren't wasting their time sitting around writing psalms about how unjust it was. And they weren't waiting on God to fix it. They were taking the law into their own hands. And... And to me, that looked like a pretty good deal. So I'm watching these movies, and these guys, they were well-armed, and they were well-trained, and they knew karate, and they just marched in and fixed everything, and they got justice. Oh, man, those were some great movies. Because I could see in the theater or at the drive-in things I never got to see in real life. And not only did all of and what I realized finally is, you know, I was an angry kid. I got a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. You know, I get mad, I stay mad. I can't, I don't have a place to to get rid of it. And what I finally realized is that the root of all my resentment was injustice. Every time I got mad, it started with, it's not fair. And then I got mad. So how do you write those scales? How do you, how do you get rid of all that anger? And, you know, and I And I didn't see God as being the solution because, to me, any God that's less than fair is less than God. So I looked at, not only did this anger and injustice cause me to look at people around me sideways, I start looking at God sideways. I'm going, hey, you watching this? (laughs) You know, you, you got cable, you watch the news? I mean, look at what these people are doing. Come on. Where's the thunder? Where's the lightning bolts? You know, how are you, why are these guys just continuing to, to prosper here? Drove me nuts. And so what I started to believe is that the solution for resentment was revenge. And where other people tried to get ahead in life, I never once remember trying to get ahead. I spent my life getting even. <laughs> I just wanted to get even. 
But even during those times when I did get revenge, it didn't make the anger go away. Now I've got a new thing to be mad about. Because the other thing I said a lot as a kid is, look what you made me do. (laughs) I didn't want to have to get down and roll around in the mud with you. I didn't want to have to resort to getting even. I didn't want to resort to revenge. But you left me no options. So, you know. But, and not only did this motivate me to revenge, but it also motivated me to perfectionism. Because I wasn't going to be the guy to screw up. I'd rather do nothing than do the wrong thing. So I also spent a lot of time really trying to toe the line. And that also, since we are unable to do that, it also bred an ability in me to rationalize and justify things. The word rationalize, the root of that is rational, which means to give a sane reason for doing an insane thing. (laughs) I was good at that. And the word justify is the word justice, to give a good reason for doing a bad thing. But I had a head where I could spin things and justify and rationalize anything. And that got to the point where one time I got in a fight with my brother, and I swear I said this. Uh, My mom was yelling at us for fighting, and I actually told her it was his fault because he hit me back first. (laughs) (laughs) But in my world... That's where it started. Yeah, that's where the, and I just couldn't see my part in things. So, when I got, when you get into the Bible and it starts saying crazy talk, like love your enemies? Really? Forgive people? Oh, what? You just let them off the hook? Said things like, don't take revenge? Sure. You know, I mean, you know, love your enemies. Heck, I can't even love my friends. <laughs> How am I supposed to love these enemies of mine? And I also thought it was kind of curious. The Bible never said don't have enemies. <laughs> it just said love, love them. I thought, well, that's curious. You know, and then, you know, people would teach me things like, oh, kill them with kindness. Oh, that's a good one. Can't I use a steak knife? <laughs> A 357 Magnum would be a little more effective, but, you know, kill them with kindness. And you see, again, this was crazy talk to me. It just didn't make sense. The first time that I ever had anybody explain why God's will was God's will, and this is a little bit off on a tangent, but this is how it started to get through the chinks in my arm. I heard Josh McDowell... Josh McDowell gave a talk one time on sexuality. And he was talking about God's will in regards to sex, but he was the first guy I ever heard that explained the why of it. He wasn't just laying out the same old tired things that do this and don't do that. He he explained it under the banner of God being a perfect, loving parent. And he says, if you loved your children, you would want to warn them about certain things so they don't do them and have consequences. So you wouldn't want to see your children uh, end up in bad relationships. You'd want to try and guide them towards healthy people to have relationships with. You wouldn't want to see your kids get certain diseases, especially the incurable ones out there today. You'd want them to avoid that. If you loved the unborn, you wouldn't want to 
bring children into this world that were less than loved or less than provided for. That would be something you'd want to avoid. You wouldn't want a lot of bad things to happen to your kids. And what really drove this home was I had friends that had no regard for morality, no regard for God, and they were out there doing what guys often do and treating women the way that guys sometimes treat women. And what was really curious to me was then they had daughters. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they adopted the most rigid Christian belief system you've ever seen for their own kids. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's pretty ironic. You know, instead of like mad mothers against drunk driving, they had the dad t-shirts, D-A-D-D, dads against dating daughters, <laughs> dads against daughters dating. And, you know, then all of a sudden, all of those rules that they threw out the window themselves started to make perfect sense. And I thought, wow, isn't that curious? Because now they started to understand the why that some of those rules made perfect sense. I thought, hmm. And that's what we get into here today. There's a few key points I'd like to make here about why we do what we do. And the first one is uh, it finally started to dawn on me in dealing with resentments and injustice in this world, two wrongs don't make a right. And the way this came to me, I wouldn't, I'm one of those feet, feet of clay kind of guys. I don't have nice woo 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 things happen around me. I don't have a lot of epiphanies or spiritual experiences. Rarely has God ever spoke to me. But there was one time where I had an event where I really believed that I had a f set of thoughts piped into my head that were so profound and so unlike anything I would think that it had to be God. And it was curious because this event happened, it was very pivotal because uh, what happened was I got my house burglarized. Actually, I didn't get it that way. It just happened. Or how they say that in Britain, you know, they burgled me. <laughs> I was burgled. <laughs> so... <laughs> so I get burgled. I... Come home, I'm working night shift, and it happened to be, you know, of all things, on Halloween night. And I come home, and I walk into my back door, and it's freezing in my house. And I thought, God, you know, the furnace must have quit. And then I see the curtains blowing in the back window, and I thought, God, well, I left the window open. But no, wait a minute. It's, you know, the end of October. I've never opened that window the whole time I've lived here. But I'm kind of thick, so then I walk down the hall, and the desk is open, and papers scattered, and I'm thinking... God, and I left a mess, and then finally, so you got robbed, you idiot. <laughs> so that wasn't the epiphany. <laughs> but So, you know, and I get down, you know, and I finally realized somebody had broke in, made a pass through the house, and all they took was some cash and a bottle of champagne. And... You know, I didn't even drink then. I was, by then, I had gotten sober, and my brother had made me a wine rack that looked kind of naked without something in it, so I had a bottle of champagne. And people say, you know, you don't drink. How come you got a bottle of champagne? I'd say, well, that's what I'm going to drink the day they cure alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm popping that, and then I'm going to go get another one. I'm drinking that, too. <laughs> but they took my champagne. And... As soon as I realized what happened, boom, I am 
mad. Uh, it's not that they did it. They did it to me. <laughs> Don't they know who I am? Don't they know what I'm capable of? And instantly, as always happened, my head just starts flooding me with what to do next. Getting even. Oh, man. Well, the first thing is the very next day I was scheduled to go do one of these fifth step things in this recovery program, you know, admit, sit down with somebody and discuss the exact nature of my wrongs. Well, that's out the window. I ain't doing that now. And, you know, so, you know, that's, I'm done with that stuff. And then I'm thinking, how am I going to get even with these guys? And, and I mean, it, it started to get a little like spooky. Because I'm thinking, I'm going to get another bottle of champagne and some rat poison, and I'm going to mix it together and put it there and wait to get robbed again. I'm going to read the obituaries and look who died drinking poison champagne, and that's my guy. (laughs) But this is how I think that you think that way, right? (laughs) And and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to break into the neighbor's house and steal their stuff and, you know, that'll balance it out. I mean, seriously, I'm thinking some crazy stuff and I'm going to hunt these people down and I've got a whole list of things that need done to them and I'm going to do them. And, and you know, and it's just, it's getting really loud up here and a little bit scary. And finally then I have this other thought go through and it goes, that's the game. That's exactly what he wants you to do. And I'm going, oh, And I'm thinking about this, and it started to occur to me. You know, all my life, I've been on the field playing a game, and I was too dumb to look at my jersey to see which side I'm on. (laughs) And eventually this got fleshed out to, uh, and some of you maybe have heard this story before, but if not, just bear with me. And it finally reminded me of the story of Jim Marshall. Anybody remember who Jim Marshall was? See, yeah, Jim Marshall, 1964, Minnesota Vikings. I might have some of the details a little fuzzy, but I'll tell it and you can correct me later. (laughs) But Jim Marshall, fantastic rookie, drafted by the Minnesota Vikings, first-year player. The guy had a phenomenal career ahead of him. And, you know, star player, you know, future was bright. Well, he made one bad play in one game that ruined his career. You know, it just haunted him the rest of his days. He was on like the 45-yard line. He gets the ball. He gets hit, spun around. He sees daylight. He goes for it. He's running down the field. Crowd is going nuts. And he's and, he, and he's going great. And his, his other teammates run up behind him. He thinks they're his defenders gets in the end zone, throws the ball down, looks at the scoreboard, wrong, puts the points on the wrong side. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so naturally, what did they call him from that day forward? Wrong way, Jim. And you see, that is the story of my life. Because that is exactly how I was. I got spun around where I would end up two wrongs don't make a right because sometimes you play offense, sometimes defense. Sometimes they have the ball and they're running right through me. And I look at the scoreboard and they scored points. But now I get the ball. What am I going to do with it? Am I going to succumb to those temptations to play it out where I'm now the score instead of 
you know, 7-0 or 7-7, you know, it's going to be 14 nothing. you know. Good guys nothing, devil 14. Yeah, I finally realized, you know, all my life I've had this backwards. And I, I need to be smarter than that. So I start thinking along a whole new line. Okay, if that's the game, then how do you put points on the correct side? And the next thought I had is, well, pray for him. Cha-ching, now it's tied up. <laughs> and maybe go do that thing you're supposed to do to, to get better spiritually. Cha-ching. And maybe the more that I go out and help people, the more that I'm getting revenge. I like revenge. <laughs> but the way you do it spiritually is by doing the right things. And I said it out loud. I start screaming in my cold house, you know. That doesn't, I'm, I'm not only gonna get, get even, I'm getting ahead here. I'm gonna, just because of this, I'm gonna go back and help twice as many people this month, and I'm gonna carry this message to more people, and I'm gonna do more of what I'm supposed to do. Take that. <laughs> and it finally, for once in my life, felt like I was on the winning side. And that makes sense. The second thing is that I was taught to start seeing people not as being bad, but as spiritually sick. The more that I started understanding why I do what I do, why do I do what I do? Because I have this lower nature that pipes things into my head. Defects of character. I act in anger and resentment. I act in fear. I act because of guilt, shame, and remorse. I act because of deception. My head tells me it's going to turn out this way, and then it turns out that way. My head says if I say this thing, it'll get this reaction, and then it gets that reaction. I'm deceived. I'm not bad. I'm deceived. I'm a victim of my own lower nature. But that's in me, but it's not of me. That's not me. I used to think that's my voice in there. It's not. That stuff is piped in. And if it's piped into me, maybe it's piped into them too. Anybody ever watch Cops? <laughs> Love Cops. Uh, now that I'm not a criminal, that's uh, that's what shocked me when I got my house burgled. You know, I actually called the police and invited them over on purpose. <laughs> that was new. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is crazy. <laughs> Will you please come over to my house and come in? <laughs> so, and they were friendly, you know, which also shocked me. But, but it's, I like cops because do you ever notice how they, you know, take down perps and bad guys? But once in a while, they know they're taking down somebody who's mentally ill. They approach them totally different. They're, they're nice to them and they're gentle with them. I'm thinking, well, why is that? Because they know they're sick. They're, they don't mean to be mean. They don't mean to be that way. They can't help it. And if they know that it's a sickness and not badness, they have a whole different approach. And that's where I'm such a hypocrite. I always had two yardsticks, one to measure me. I'm pleading insanity. I'm sick, but not them. They're just bad, and they need to burn in hell, but not me. I'm sick. I'm a sick person trying to get well. And you see, I need to realize that they're spiritually sick, and to the degree that they are is this exact degree that they bug me. Because I realize I don't have a problem with people. 
I have a problem with people's defects of character. If they weren't angry, if they weren't intolerant, if they weren't paranoid, if they weren't judgmental, I don't have a problem with them. The Bible tells us, last chapter of Ephesians, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the principalities, and the dark unseen forces of the spiritual realm. So really, my problem isn't with the people. If your dog has fleas, you know how you can get rid of them? Shoot your dog. And the fleas go away, but that's not the solution, is it? No. The problem isn't your dog, it's the fleas. You see, our lower nature is the parasite. We're people are the host. I had that confused. So the more that I can start to cut people some slack and seeing them as sick, the more gentle I could be with them. The third thing has to do with forgiveness. There again, that didn't make sense. We just let them off the hook. But you see, this is where I completely misunderstood what God's will was when it came to forgiveness. And now I know maybe Mike and I might explain this a little different or maybe have some different angles on this, but I'm just going to tell it the way I explain it to people. But this is what made sense to me. The confusion in the Bible is there's two separate models for forgiveness. And people muddle them together, and then it doesn't make sense. There's one model that Christ laid down for forgiving brothers and sisters, or King James, brethren and sistren. But <laughs> there's the model for that is if a, if a brother offends you, and comes back and asks for forgiveness, confessing his wrong, and he's contrite about it, and asks you for forgiveness, how many times do you have to forgive him? Seven times? And Christ said, no, 70 times seven. But you know what? I never had a problem with that kind of forgiveness. If you wrong me and actually show up and apologize, all right. You know, if you show up and offer to make amends to me, hey, we're cool. If you show up and actually show me that it bothers you that you harmed me? Hey, we're cool, man. I can live with that. I don't have a problem forgiving people under those circumstances. The injustice came with how do you forgive people that don't care? (laughs) They don't even acknowledge they hurt me. They don't care that they hurt me. They could they are sleeping like babies at night. I'm the one laying awake in the middle of the night stewing. What do you go knock on their door and you know, hi, here's 20 bucks for calling the cops on me, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. Or, you know, I'm here, you know, I know that I'm a victim of you, but I'm just here to forgive you. You know, that means nothing. Here's the model for that. What we're really being asked to do, and you'll find this in our Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know what another translation of that is? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The model for that type of forgiveness is exactly the picture of selling bad debt to a debt collector. See, if I'm a businessman, I've got some uncollectible accounts, and I could go collect them, but that's not my business. It's not my specialty, beating people up for money. And they owe me, and I could collect it, but I'd rather do the business that I'm engaged in. So what I can do, I can sell that debt to professional debt collectors in return for pennies on the dollar. And then I get my money 
And I don't really care if they get theirs or not. <laughs> they might collect it all. None of, that's none of my business. They might get nothing. None of my business. When we forgive under that model, what God is saying is, you have debts that are owed to you. Sell them to me, and in return, I won't give you pennies on the dollar. Even better, I'm going to pay you enough to pay off all of your outstanding debts to me. And in some cases, that's dollars on the pennies. And you see, if that's what God is asking me to do, I can do that. Oh, you mean I just turn these accounts over to God and then I can wash my hands of them? And now I can take the negative view and go, oh, that means that's okay. I'm not going to get them. God's going to get them. <laughs> but really, it's more about God dealing with them, hopefully in the way he dealt with me, to turn them, not burn them. And, but I'm okay with that because I'm not, it's not injustice. I'm getting a very good, clean deal in return. The next thing is, you know, there's a part I put in here, you know, that also didn't make sense, you know. And if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What's that all about? But you see, the, what's the, what that is about is it's about us being in control. Does anybody ever have fantasies of quitting their job? <laughs> yeah. You know, remember Johnny Paycheck did that song, Take This Job and something, you know, but that was a huge hit. <laughs> Why did that resonate with people? Because who hasn't thought about winning a horrible job? feels good just to think about it. Now, anybody ever fantasize about going to work and getting fired? <laughs> That's a whole other dynamic. Today's the day. They're going to fire you. Even if they're firing you from a job you hate, it's humiliating. Even it's, it's, it still feels like a tremendous personal loss. I, I can't enjoy that. I can't feel good about getting fired. Why does it feel so good to quit and so lousy to get fired? I think it has to do with who's in charge, doesn't it? I want to leave with my boots on. I want to be the guy that leaves on my terms. And oh gosh, if I could just win the lottery or, you know, get an inheritance or, you know, just something where I could march into or get a better job, you know, oh, I quit. Oh. And you see, and that's where even if people demand things of us, like, you know what, you're going to take my shirt? Here, take the coat, too. Oh, you're going to make me carry this thing a mile? I'm going to carry it two miles. You're not making me do anything. Just like they didn't make Christ go with them in the Garden of Gethsemane. He told them clearly, I'm going because I choose to go. I'm laying this down voluntarily. And the final point is, we come to believe, I think, in the concept of eternal justice. See, God's justice isn't instant because we all have been given self-will. We have a right to be wrong. But I believe there is a final accounting. I just don't think it's going to happen instantaneously. You know, can you imagine driving your car where, and you know, this is what scares me. Some people like technology, but you know, they have the technology where every time you drive your car and the speedometer needle goes above 55, it could just spit a ticket out of your dashboard and deduct it from your checking account. <laughs> ah, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> you know, here come all these debit receipts. And, but you know, that, 
that's a horrible scenario. And it, it's, a, you know, that's what a picture of instant justice looks like. You know, God is withholding justice because he wants a maximum number of people to be saved. And it's a process. And sometimes people step on our toes. Sometimes we step on their toes. But he's more concerned for our long-term development rather than our short-term comfort. And that's why I do believe that God will divinely, eternally balance scales, but I just no longer expect it to be now. I can live with delayed justice. I can't live with no justice. But hopefully this all kind of gives us some places to file some things or see things from a different angle. Call the worship team up. We'll do a final song. And then we've got communion today. We're going to, uh, I think, we're going to do the song as we go to communion. Is that how we do it? Okay. So are we going to do communion first? or Okay. We're going to go to communion. We're not going to tell you when to take the elements. We're going to start playing the music. You can file back, take the elements, take them at your leisure. And uh, as we do that, hopefully we'll just reflect a little bit, not on what God wants from us, but what we can expect from him. Thank you. Prayer today is a very simple one. Please help us to go out from here to seek and do your will not just because you say so, but mainly because it's what's best for us. It's what's best for you, and what it's what's best for the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remember the fundraiser in the back. Check it out before we leave, and have a good week. Thank you.